This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. You know, it was just a year ago this week, state officials held a news conference on the occasion of what Governor Peter Shumlin called a dark day for Vermont. They were there to announce fraud allegations against two developers in the Northeast Kingdom who were charged with defrauding investors of hundreds of millions of dollars. If you saw video or photos of the press conference, you might remember the huge, complicated chart that then-Attorney General Bill Sorrell brought out. It depicted dozens of colored boxes and a vast, tangled spiderweb of lines connecting them to show the flow of funds in a far-reaching alleged fraud scheme. Let me just say that this is not a depiction of a simple bank robbery. Rather, this depicts what we allege to be a massive and complex fraudulent enterprise. That was the first word many Vermonters had that Ariel Kuros and Bill Stenger were allegedly bilking investors and leaving promised jobs and developments in the Northeast Kingdom up in the air. A lot has happened in the past year, and apparently everyone loves an anniversary because there's more news developing just this week. We're going to spend the whole hour looking back and looking ahead. We'll remind you of the EB-5 scandal, get you up to speed, explain those new developments, and find out what the plan is for making investors whole. I'm joined first today by investigative reporter Hillary Niles, who's been covering the Northeast Kingdom EB-5 scandal. Hillary, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Jane. Nice to be here. So let's get in our time machine and go back a year. Can you recap what actually kicked off this whole shebang with uh, Attorney General Sorrell giving us that spider web of lines and all of these allegations coming out? Okay, so I'll do my best to recap it uh, succinctly. Um, dating back to uh, 2006, 2007, um, JPEAK had started to use the federal EB-5 immigrant investor program to raise funds for building out JPEAK Resort. It was um, seemed to be going well, and so after the um, after the resort was sold. Excuse me. After the resort was sold to Ariel Kiros, um, Kiros and Bill Stanger, the longtime CEO up at Jay Peak, um, ended up using the EB five program a lot more. It went from one project worth just under twenty million dollars to a total of seven or eight projects worth upwards of $350 million all told. It encompassed several projects at Jay Peak. They also um, acquired Burke Mountain and had a lot of plans for downtown Newport as well. All right. So there are all these plans. And then all of a sudden, the bottom falls out to those of us who are just, you know, hanging out doing our normal lives. Suddenly, there are these massive fraud investigations and what the federal government is calling a Ponzi scheme. So what's the what were the allegations? Yeah, a Ponzi like scheme. I know. Uh, I've always wondered why we have to call it a Ponzi like scheme. Isn't a Ponzi scheme? I mean, it's named after Ponzi, but isn't that the point of what a Ponzi scheme is? But anyway, I digress. Right. Um, I think that there are. Yeah, apparently there are. What is a Ponzi? like scheme, if not a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> there are variations on a theme, apparently. <laughs> um, so uh, this Ponzi-like scheme where instead of investors' money being put into the one project that they invested in and held an equity or ownership stake in, um, that money allegedly was diverted to backfill um, gaps um, in funding for prior projects and also to, according to the SEC and the state charges, the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission and state prosecutors, um, also Ariel Kuros used investor money to buy JPEAK itself, to buy Kuberk, uh, what he renamed Kuberk Mountain, to buy the 
ski area at Burke Mountain. Which and he was supposed to be buying with his own money. Exactly, yeah. And so the money was not going to where it was supposed to go for the investors. Um, and in this Ponzi-like fashion, the gaps just kept getting harder and harder to fill. Um, many contractors went without payment. A lot of investors are still really in limbo, not only for their investments, which are $500,000 a piece, but also for the immigration benefits that those investments were supposed to have um, generated. So a year ago this week, these allegations came down and these charges, and there were charges that were um, filed by both the federal government and the state government. What were those charges? Oh, oh gosh. Well, I mean, there were, I think, like upwards of 52, 52 charges, but um, uh, it, it essentially came down to securities fraud. So now we've had this year intervening. There's been a lot of movement you know, over the months, um, including some big changes with Bill Stanger. So what's the situation? What has happened with Bill Stanger over the year? So Bill Stanger settled with the SEC. Um, the settlement um, does not allow him to deny any culpability. It also does not require him to admit any culpability. So there's just sort of a settlement with a giant question mark there, what really happened. Um, Ariel Kiros is um, vigorously fighting the charges. Um, there also is a pending or ongoing, I should say, um, criminal investigation. We haven't really learned yet what the fate of that is going to be. Um, but there is also a criminal investigation ongoing into the activities of both men. Listeners, we're talking today about the situation with the EB-5 scandal. It erupted a year ago this week. Uh, lots happening in the intervening months and a lot happening right now. And we're going to get into that with investigative reporter Hillary Niles in just a moment. And Hillary, we got a question from Mark who says, do you honestly believe Bill Stenger's assertions that he had no idea what Kiros was doing with the EB-5 money that he transferred to various other accounts? Do you think that any criminal charges will be brought against Stenger for his role. Now, I'm not going to ask you what you personally believe, because that is not your role as a journalist. But but you just mentioned that that there are possible pending criminal charges against uh, Bill Stenger. Yeah. And that's the big question right now that a whole lot of people want to know, no doubt, including Bill Stenger and Ariel Garros. <laughs> um, and and the hundreds, I mean, it $500,000 a piece, there are about 700 investors um, who have a lot at stake here, as well as the contractors who still haven't been paid. Um, and, and really, it's, it's not just a business transaction. This was proposed, this was, um, you know, sort of paraded through multiple press conferences and a lot of attention showered on what a game changer this was going to be for the economy of the Northeast Kingdom. So really, um, the direct stakeholders and I think all of the citizens of Vermont, Mark, if you if you know, you give me a call and we'll talk <laughs> because I'm trying to find that out too. <laughs> we also got a question from Robert in Holland who says, according to several recent articles in VT Digger, the state of Vermont, specifically Lawrence Miller, then Secretary of the Commerce Agency and later Chief of healthcare reform for Governor Shumlin ignored allegations by a business partner in the JP projects that Kiros and Stenger's financial representations couldn't be trusted. Douglas Hume, is that how you say his name? I, I think it's Hume. Hume, a Florida attorney representing green card applicants, attempted to warn the state in more detail in a meeting in May of 2012. But instead of heeding Hume's advice, state officials forced his company, Rapid USA, out of the state. The state's mismanagement, or at least cavalier indifference, has apparently been ongoing since 2012. When are the people of the state going to say enough and demand administrative accountability? 
That is also an excellent question. And the question that I still have not found a satisfactory answer to is why at that point in 2012, with the allegations of Doug, Doug Hume, um, why why the Department of Financial Regulation didn't get involved sooner. These are federal these are these are securities. Now my understanding is, and this is from a lot of people in the EB five world around the country, is that in the early days of the EB five program, people genuinely didn't understand that they were securities and didn't understand that they needed to be treated as such. Um, that uh, excuse of naivete, I think, only lasts so long. And certainly when there were allegations of financial mismanagement in 2012, it is curious that the person who was running the EB-5 office at the time, um, who was not a financial regulator, um, you know, spent a, a, apparently all of a day up at Jay Peak and, you know, um, sorting through some papers and listening to to what the Jay Peak representatives had to say and and dismissed the concerns. Yeah, because let's remind people, so the, so the way this project works, the EB-5 visa project, is that foreign investors have to put forward um, in in rural areas like uh, the Northeast Kingdom $500,000, in other parts of the country, a million dollars. And there have to be a certain number of jobs that are created by that investment. And in exchange for the investment, the investors get green cards. They can come and live in the United States, and they don't have to live where they're investment is. They they basically get a green card to come live here in exchange for the money they're putting forward. So it's not just a business deal. It also involves the federal government and our immigration processes. And that's where the, the government gets involved. But in Vermont's case, it was not the Department of Financial Regulation that was initially overseeing the EB-5 projects in the state of Vermont. Exactly. The oversight of the EB-5 program, and not just oversight, the oversight and administration and ownership. Vermont had a very unique program in this in this regard. It was the only state government at the time that wholly owned, administered, and oversaw the EB-5 program. And it was placed in the Agency of Commerce. And that's something that we've reported, um, that I've reported in my work with uh, VPR as well, is that it was the oversight and sort of responsibility for this program was placed in an agency that did not have the legal authority to actually audit the companies it was supposed to be overseeing. Um, there were some pieces of authority that they did have that they chose not to exercise, like requiring written reports. But even at that point, I mean, um, there there. Was a there was a suggestion from um, Brent Raymond, the former uh, regional center director, that they require a forensic audit of the programs of the projects. I excuse me, like Jay Peak, and um, and that proposal was that that suggestion by Brent Raymond was bypassed. Jay Peak said it would be too expensive, and so the, then the powers that be um, over Brent's head at the regional center apparently let it let it go. But that's something that has been uncovered in some of the documentation. And I should say, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to be speaking with the commissioner of the Department of Financial Regulation, which does now oversee the EB-5 uh, program in Vermont, Michael Pichek. Right now, we're talking with Hillary Niles, an independent investigative journalist who's been really uh, digging deep on the EB-5 
situation for over a year now. And we've talked a little bit about what happened and how this all came to be. But as I said at the beginning of the show, Hillary, there there's some movement happening right now. And let's take these step by step because there are a couple different pieces here. Um, so one of the things is that uh, there's news that emerged a few days ago of a new lawsuit that has been filed against the former parent company of JPEAK. This is the company that sold JPEAK to Ariel Kiros. So what does the lawsuit allege? The lawsuit alleges this was brought by one of the early investors in JPEAK. And the lawsuit alleges that MSSI, the, the parent company at the time that sold the resort to Ariel Kiros, the lawsuit alleges that they should have known or potentially did know, um, but pretended not to know, that um, Mr. Kiros was, instead of using his own money to buy the resort like he was supposed to be doing, um, that he was using investor funds. Now, that uh, that precept, that concept, that Kiros used investor funds rather than his own money, that is documented in the allegations, or that is alleged, I should say, um, in both the federal and state charges, as well as um, this latest action brought by Mr. Sutton. But basically, the um, the evidence that he cites in support of the lawsuit, that Mr. Sutton cites in support of the lawsuit, is that Kiros um, put down a relatively paltry sum of, I think, I think it was like $350,000 um, as sort of the down payment, um, that there was no due diligence done by the parent company to verify uh, Mr. Kiros's sort of financial wherewithal to actually um, complete this purchase with his own money. And peculiarly, uh, MSSI transferred the investor money, uh, about $18 million of investor money, to Mr. Kiros before the sale was actually finalized, which raises some questions of why they would do that if they didn't think that he was going to be then taking that money, turning it back around to them and saying, here's your money for the resort. Mm. All right. So this is the lawsuit. Yeah. It's just come out. There's another uh, issue that's happening with Ariel Kiros's legal team unrelated to to this lawsuit. What's right. happening with his legal team? So Ariel Kiros has um, not been talking and his lawyers have not been talking this whole time. Um, we don't really have insight into what his legal strategy is and what the specifics of his defense are. Um, he just fired his longtime legal team and has a new lawyer, has a new team of attorneys working for him. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how his legal strategy changes from here from here forward. And that's why you care, because this might signal a change in his legal strategy. Exactly. All right. So the third issue that's just coming out now, and in fact, you're reporting on this now as, as we have this conversation, is that there may soon be a settlement coming down that involves one of the financial institutions that's involved, sort of wrapped up in this whole situation. What do you know? So there are many financial institutions that have been involved. Um, we, I don't yet know which it is, but we have reason to believe that there is a pending settlement with a financial institution. Um, 
I do know from speaking with Michael Goldberg, the federally appointed receiver who's been running JPEAC um, for the past year in receivership, um, I do know from Mr. Goldberg that he is hoping to make a pretty big announcement that will make the contractors whole who are out about five and a half million dollars. And those are contractors at, at what used to be called Kubrick and JPEAC who were building up the resorts. Right, right. And who who did not get paid as they were promised. Um and also, um, apparently, this—he—he um, <laughs> he was not—he was not uh, able to give too many specifics. But we can expect a pretty big announcement uh, from Mr. Goldberg. You know, if things go as he plans um, in the next week or two. Uh, again, the negotiations did not seem to be finalized when I spoke with him. So this settlement with whatever financial institution it is, it's not a settlement with Ariel Kuros. It's you know not a not, settlement with, not that with I know Bill Stanger. Of. Yeah, but it would the money as you have been seeing it would go to the contractors, not to investors. No, no, no. it would go to the contractors and it would go to the investors. So um, all told, if you add up the five and a half million dollars for the contract. Um, the investors who are completely out of their money, that's mainly the ANC bio investors. Now, there, was, there were like later, about I think it was about 35 later investors in ANC bio. That was the proposed biomedical facility that was um, going to be built in Newport. Um, there, the, when the state did get involved, when DFR did get involved, they kept a pretty tight grip on the purse strings. And um, Mr. Goldberg, the receiver, was able to return about $17.5 million to those later investors. However, there are, I think, in the neighborhood of 60 or more um, prior investors who uh, whose money had all but disappeared, um, allegedly. And uh, Mr. Goldberg is looking to make them whole. They're like very high on his priority list because in his view, the other investors at JPEAC, while they may not have gotten their money back on the schedule that they were hoping to, most of them still have ownership of a hotel. And so he expects that they'll be paid back once the hotel eventually sells, once the resort eventually sells. So he's mostly trying to get the money back for the contractors, for very trade vendors who have you know who are owed money and especially for those ANC bio investors and all told it adds up to in the neighborhood of a hundred million dollars that he's trying to get back he's optimistic that he will get it back and it remains to be seen whether this settlement he's working on is is going to get finalized this week or next and what the dollar figure is going to be on that but he is expecting that there will be many happy people that's uh, good news for investors and contractors. Um, Hillary, before we let you go, can you just put this a little bit in context for us? Obviously, f- for us in Vermont, this is, has been a huge story. And the EB-5 visa program, federal program, um, but to to many people who are, have been following this story, it can almost seem like this is the only EB-5 program in the country because it's been such big news how does it fit into this larger federal program where these kinds of investors and investments are being made elsewhere as well? Right. So it is a very big deal in Vermont, um, but it's important to keep in mind that the EB-5 program nationally is a pretty big program. There are several hundred regional centers and projects. That said, the projects at JPEAC that were EB-5 funded were among the biggest in the country. And 
Also, the state-run regional center, up until it wasn't, uh, was a pillar of purity, uh, presumed purity, in the EB-5 world. So it is a big deal in Vermont. It is a big program nationally. And it's a big deal within that larger context. Hillary Niles is an independent investigative reporter who's been covering the NEK EB-5 scandal. And you will hear more of her reporting in our newscasts this week. You can also find all of it going back for over a year at VPR.net. Hillary, thanks. Thank you, Jane. Today we're getting up to speed in developments in the EB-5 scandal with Jay Peake, Bill Stenger, and Ariel Kuros. Hillary Niles gave us the latest, and now we're going to talk with Michael Pichak, Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, which is now in charge of overseeing the EB-5 program in Vermont. Commissioner Pichak, welcome back to the program. I think you have your phone on, and so you have our delayed program going on. We're, we're, he's trying to get us in delay here so you can hear us double. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for closing that up. Commissioner, nice to have you on the program and just speak to you in single voice. Well, thank you, Jane. It's great to be here, and it's a pleasure, and um, it's very apropos since it was about a year ago that the state and uh, the SEC filed uh, civil charges against uh, the, the uh, JP entities and against Mr. Stenger and Mr. Kiros. Yeah, so we were just talking with Hillary Niles about the fact that uh, Bill Stenger settled, so that, um, as far as I know with the state, is not a pending issue anymore, correct? Well, Mr. Uh, Stenger settled with the SEC, so the state still has a case open uh, and very much uh, actively uh, litigating with Mr. Kiros and Mr. Stanger both. And are there likely to be criminal charges? Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office back in April of 16 uh, publicly stated that they were uh, looking into the matter. I think they used the word investigating the matter. Um, that's somewhat unusual for a U.S. Attorney's Office to make a statement like that, but they did, and that was uh, in April, and uh, that's what they've said publicly. So, And that's all you can say publicly? That's exactly right. All right. So uh, what about with um, Ariel Kuros? What, what is the state... Um, what is the state doing with Ariel Kiros right now? So with both of the defendants, uh, both Mr. Stenger and Mr. Kiros, um, we survived, uh, you know, looking back in the last year, what the sort of legal update is, um, both uh, Mr. Kiros filed both in the state case and in the federal case a motion to dismiss. Uh, in November, the federal court denied that uh, motion to dismiss, uh, put the permanent injunction in place that puts Mike Goldberg uh, overseeing all of the assets until the conclusion of the case. Uh, the judge used very forceful language. He included a exhibit that was our spaghetti chart that the Department of Financial Regulation put together, which I think visually uh, tells uh, anyone, whether they have a legal degree or not or a financial background or not, uh, what the allegations are. Um, similarly, the state's case survived a motion to dismiss in December. Um, so those were the first legal hurdles for the legal case. Now we're proceeding into what's called discovery, uh, in which both sides sort of share the information that they have and, and show sort of the backup of their case. Um, discovery, both in the SEC case and in our case, will continue throughout 2017. Uh, it'll look more likely than not go into 2018. A trial date has been set for the SEC's case with Mr. Kiros, which is September 2018. So even as me as a lawyer, that you know that is certainly a long time off. But uh, there'll be a lot of work that goes on between now and then from both sides uh, to prepare uh, the legal arguments. And that goes on regardless of what happens with this uh, pending settlement that Hillary Niles just told us about, that there may be a settlement with a financial institution that's 
been involved, the cases against uh, Kiros and Stenger go on regardless of what happens with that? Yeah, um, I mean, both the Department of Financial Regulation and Mr. Goldberg have been looking uh, at third-party individuals that have some culpability, and that is separate and distinct from um, Mr. Mr. Stenger and Mr. Kiros's, uh, you know, civil liability. So, for example, um, last summer, the Department of Financial Regulation settled uh, with Raymond James for $5.9 million, $1.4 million of which came to the state, $4.5 million of which went to Mr. Goldberg to hold uh, for the benefit of the receivership estate. Uh, Mr. Goldberg also reached a settlement at the beginning of the year with Citibank for $13.3 million. Uh, that uh, went partly to fund uh, some unpaid contractors. So it got some money out to some unpaid contractors. Um, it was a first step in the right direction. Uh, to get money in the hands of an unpaid creditor within a year is lightning speed in these receiverships. So, you know, all credit to Mike Goldberg. Um, but uh, those are separate matters than the civil cases that the SEC and the department are uh, have pending against Mr. Stanger and Mr. Kiros. You've been talking a little bit about how investors might get their money back, and some of that is through these settlements, and some of that is through the pending cases that are also uh, ongoing with Ariel Kuros and Bill Stenger. Is there any likelihood that every investor who put money in will be made whole? I mean, is that even a possibility? Well, Jane, I think the, the reason that that is a possibility is when you look at the good work that Michael Goldberg has done in the last year. So when the SEC and the state were preparing uh, the case and, and uh, on the precipice of filing it in April, you know, we were very mindful that uh, the ski season had ended, that the ski resort was going into the slow season. Uh, there was a question about whether uh, the resort would be open, you know, the day after, or the weeks after, the months after the cases were filed. And that was certainly a concern for all parties involved. Uh, the Northeast Kingdom, uh, you know, would have a tremendous, uh, you know, impact if that had happened. Um, so the fact that Mr. Goldberg has come in, has left the lights on, so to speak, um, has met every payroll for hundreds of JPEG employees. Uh, he was in a position to take advantage of the tremendous snow season that we have because the resort stayed open. Uh, tremendous amount of visitors to the Northeast Kingdom that spent dollars within the community. He opened the Burke Mountain Hotel, which otherwise could have been shuttered. He opened that, and that's performing better than budget. Um, he got U.S. ski team designation at the Burke Hotel, which is going to help with filling that hotel and getting people onto the mountain. So when you're talking about will investors be made whole, I mean, the fact that it's an operating going concern business versus a business that was shuttered, the value proposition there is tremendous. I mean, whatever he sells it for will be many, many, many times what he could have got for it at sort of, you know, salvage value uh, if the resort was closed. So that, that which was a tremendous lift for Mike Goldberg to keep the thing open um, is going to have a tremendous impact both for the investors, eventually for the unpaid contractors and trade creditors, and also just generally for the Northeast Kingdom. All right. So um, that can solve some of the problems because, you know, that sale, that that um, sale would actually help to go give money back to investors in JP and in Burke. But what about people who invested in places like ANSI Bio, which is not going to come to the Northeast Kingdom, will not be opening, you know, other projects that there are investors who are basically just currently out out money. I mean, would would they get money from that sale? 
Well, it's a fair question because when you look at this, the eight different projects and one of them being ANC Bio, I mean, Mike Goldberg is the receiver over all of them and, and he sort of looks at them as a unit of one instead of necessarily eight separate components. But you could look at it either way. Um, and I think more likely than not, whether it's through um, independent settlements, whether it's through the sale of the resort, uh, those that uh, do not get an immigration benefit, some will get immigration benefit. People in ANC Bio you know, as the SEC said, was a complete fraud, uh, will not have the opportunity more likely than not to have any immigration benefit. And I think you look to get them their full financial return back uh, as soon as possible. All right. So let me just just clarify uh, so that I know what you're saying. So so anybody who invested in ANSI Bio is not going to be able to come to the United States and get that green card because ANSI Bio didn't happen. They didn't create those jobs. The requirements of the EB-5 visa were not met. That's exactly right. So the, the requirements are that the money comes in, the 500000 comes in, and there's some connectivity between that 500000 and the 10 jobs that need to be created. In the ANSI Bio case, you know, we make allegations that the money was diverted for personal use, for mis mismanaged in terms of buying other things that they weren't supposed to buy within the projects. Um, so you're left with an incomplete project. For phases one, which is the tram house, through six, which is stateside, there was actually construction that occurred there and there were jobs that were created, whether it was investor A's money that created the 10 jobs uh, on the other side or whether it was investor B or part of the same. I mean, that's something that can be worked through, but they have an immigration benefit or they're in process to get an immigration benefit. How many of them? Uh, so How there's about 800 investors altogether. Uh, about 330 or so have received what is called final uh, 829 approval. That's the unconditional visa. Uh, the other 500 or so are uh, in process. Uh, a number of them have received a conditional visa, which is the first step. Um, and we'll see, uh, I think, uh, particularly with the Burke project, uh, we'll see some movement uh, in adjudications in the near future. That's a lot of people moving to this country under the EB-5 program, even under what uh, appears to be a fraudulent, um, you know, a, a fraudulent series of investments. That's still a lot of people who are actually going to get that visa benefit, which is what they they are supposed to get for their investment. They're not supposed to necessarily get their money back. I mean, it is an unsecured investment. So, uh, yeah, unsecured investment. Uh, it, it has to be at risk by the design of the program. So it cannot be a guarantee. It can't be collateralized with something. It has to actually be at risk, and, and there has to be skin in the game. Um, so this is eight hundred. Over an you know eight or so year period, um, there's actually a cap on the number of visas that can be issued in a particular year, and also a cap on the number of visas that can be issued in a particular country. So um, the interest nationally in EB five uh, has exploded, uh, particularly around the time of the financial crisis when real estate developers were trying to find cash to to do real estate projects and they couldn't get it through traditional sources. EB five then became a source of revenue for real estate developers. So, I mean, the, the program really went from like hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you know, in the early, uh, you know, late 2000s to multiple billion dollars a year, uh, as we see more recently. Um, the number of regional centers across the country has exploded as well. There's something like six or 700 regional centers. Um, so there are a number of good, you know, there are a number of good, solid projects in Vermont and elsewhere that have occurred. Um, so this hasn't hasn't uh, damaged the reputation of the EB-5 
pro uh, program to such an extent that people are no longer investing in other projects? They are still investing in other projects, but but to your point, if you look at the JPEAK, which is basically, depending on how you look at it, the largest alleged EV-5 fraud in the country, uh, you look at what was called the Chicago Convention Center case, which was back in like the 2013, which was a $193 million project. You look at the Seattle case, which was about $50 million. And just last week, uh, we actually had uh, the FBI raid uh, an EB-5 project in Los Angeles, a $50 million project where the investors and the project developers were colluding with each other to commit fraud against USCIS. So there's another even new variation of the type of EB-5 fraud that you'd see. So, so what do you want the federal government to do then? I mean, there's long been talk of reforming the EB-5 program, and that seems to just get cute. That can seems to be kicked down the road more and more. But, you know, uh, Senator Leahy's been calling for either um, a revision in how the program works or get rid of it. You know, what, what do you as well, I commissioner think, want? I think there's two things that really are key to, to thinking about this. You made the point about rural area development. So I don't know if you know how many uh, – what percentage actually gets put into rural areas. But it's actually something like 6 or 7 percent of all EB-5 money goes to traditional rural areas. The vast majority of the money go to places like New York City, Miami, L.A., Washington, D.C., Chicago – Seattle, places that are not rural or not necessarily economically uh, disadvantaged, but they sort of gerrymander these districts to include areas of, of poverty or areas of, of rural areas and then are able to develop within metropolitan areas. For only 500,000. For only 500,000. Yeah, exactly right. So that's an area that, that is ripe for uh, reform and would help uh, the state of Vermont and other rural states. And that was the original design of the program was to get money in areas that otherwise wouldn't be able to get capital like the Northeast Kingdom. The other area that, of course, uh, the USCIS can do a better job is uh, in the area of compliance and oversight. So USCIS has announced that they're going to be conducting audits on uh, individual projects in regional centers where they actually come and uh, do a field audit and ensure that the information that's being provided to them is accurate in terms of the number of jobs created uh, and the number of investors and investment that has happened. So that type of oversight is important. The continued oversight of state regulators like we do here in Vermont and the continued oversight of the SEC, uh, which has happened over the last two or three years, uh, is another important component of this. But we do that for any type of investment, and so does the SEC. So this has just become another um, area for us to, to, to be focused on in terms of securing uh, investor monies uh, and ensuring people are doing the right thing. That's uh, Michael Pichak, Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Thanks very much for talking with us today. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jane. It's my pleasure. For more from Vermont Edition on EB-5, check out our conversation with David White. He's president of the commercial real estate firm that's looking into how to revive the Renaissance Block, otherwise known as the big hole in the ground in downtown Newport. It was supposed to be developed with EB-5 money, but right now it's just a bunch of cellar holes. That interview is on VPR.net, or you can find it by searching for Vermont Edition in the NPR One app. Listeners, if there's a comment you'd like to add to this conversation, leave a note on the Vermont Edition page at VPR.net. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet us at Vermont Edition. And follow Vermont Edition in NPR One for all our latest content. Vermont Edition is produced by Rick Singeri, Sam Gill-Rosen, and Meg Malone. Mary Williams directed this program. Our executive producer is Patty Daniels. And our theme music was composed by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. I'm Jane Lindholm. Thanks for listening.